I find in talking to some of my non-Christian friends that there is a question that they frequently raise about the gospel. It has to do with uh, those that they see uh, outside the light. They're usually described as people in some foreign country who live in darkness and have no opportunity to hear about, uh, about Jesus. And since we as Christians assume on the basis of Scripture that Jesus is the way, the question is frequently raised, what about those who have never heard about Jesus? Isn't it patently unfair of God to judge them if, they, uh, if they've never heard? And since we believe that God is just, it raises a, a moral problem, moral question. That's not an easy knot to untie. It's a hard one. But I think the passage that we're going to look at this morning gives us a great deal of help. It's the 10th chapter of Acts. Acts 10. We'll begin reading with verse 10. It's the story of Cornelius, the centurion, and uh, Simon Peter, the apostle. I'm sorry I said verse 10. It's verse 1. 10-1. There was a man in Caesarea by the name of Cornelius, a centurion, and what was called the Italian Regiment. He was a deeply religious man who reverenced God, as did all his household. He made many charitable gifts to the Jewish people and was a real man of prayer. We're introduced to Cornelius here as a centurion, and it seems to me in reading through the New Testament that uh, these centurions were almost highly regarded. By the, uh, by the authors of Scripture, by Jesus himself and by the apostles. Jesus refers to one centurion whom he said had more faith, had a deeper and more real faith than anyone else in Israel that Jesus had encountered. And then there was the centurion at the foot of the cross who saw what many people did not see, and that is that the one who hung there was the Son of God. And here we have another centurion who's described as a, as a good man. Uh, these centurions, of course, were Roman soldiers, non-commissioned officers. We often think of them as, as commissioned officers, but they weren't. They were people who had worked their way up through the ranks. They were battle-hardened, uh, seasoned veterans. They uh, had not gone to the military academies of that day, but rather usually came from the middle classes and were tough old soldiers who had proved their value on the battlefield. The uh, Probably the modern-day equivalent would be a master sergeant. And when I think back on some of the master sergeants I had while I was in the service, they all seemed to be cut out of the same old, tough, old, cigar-chomping uh, men. And this apparently was, was the way uh, Cornelius was. He's described here as a member of the Italian cohort, which means he was a Roman rather than uh, someone drawn from the ranks of these captured uh, countries and uh, probably part of a picked elite group who were there in Caesarea to guard the Roman governor. The prefect lived there. That was the capital of the Roman province of, of Palestine. And perhaps they were there to protect, uh, protect the prefect. But uh, we're told that he was, a, he was a good man. He made charitable gifts to the Jewish people, seemed to love those that uh, the Romans had conquered. and He was a real man of prayer, as J.B. Phillips puts it. And he was a monotheist in contrast to most Romans who were, if anything at all, uh, polytheists. They worshipped many gods. Most of the Romans had pretty much given up on Roman uh, theology and worship. It was completely corrupt. And this man, Cornelius, was apparently tired of the endless rounds of making the bars on the weekends and, and one poker game after another. 
And he was just looking for something. He was a man with a, with a hungry heart. And he had seen something in Jewish worship that drew him. He began to read the scriptures and he became convinced that there was one God. He hadn't gone much further than that, but he had, he had a, there was a sense of what ought to be about Cornelius. I, uh, I know men like that, and you probably do too, that on the surface seem to be very secular and disinterested in spiritual things, but, but down deep inside they have a great hunger for God. I uh, think of one man who's become a good friend of mine, who's made, I'm sure, is not aware of his, his search for spiritual things. He sort of reads the scripture on the sly, and uh, down in his heart he hungers after God, but on the surface he's just as tough and indifferent as ever. And that's sort of the way I picture Cornelius in my mind. He was that, that sort of person. We're told about three o'clock one afternoon. This is verse three. He saw perfectly clearly in a dream an angel of God coming into his room, approaching him and saying, Cornelius. And Cornelius did what you and I would do. He stared at the angel in terror and said, what is it, sir? The, uh, our translations say Lord, but it's, at this point Cornelius was not thinking of this uh, vision in terms of, of deity, it was simple respect. And being a military man, he addresses this uh, angel as, Sir, the angel replied, Your prayers and your deeds of charity have gone up to heaven and are remembered before God. Your prayers are answered and your charity will be rewarded. And I've come to answer your request. Now, we don't know what, what Cornelius was praying, but I suspect his prayer was something like this. Lord, if you exist at all, help me to know who you are. Help me to understand more of, of the truth. So he's given instruction. He's told to send men to Joppa for a man called Simon, whom we know as Peter, the apostle. He's staying as a guest with another Simon, a tanner, whose house is down by the sea. Joppa was about 30 miles south of Caesarea along the coast. And he was told to send to Joppa to find this Simon, who was totally unknown to Cornelius. But help was on the way, he believed, and so he dispatched two of his house servants, two of his uh, his uh, household uh, servants, and a devout soldier as a bodyguard. And he told them the story and sent them off to Joppa. Meanwhile, down in Joppa, Peter was having a Big Mac attack. We're told while these men were still on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up about midday on the flat roof of the house to pray, and he became very hungry and longed for something to eat. His houses in the ancient world were flat, the stairway on the outside, and they often went up on the roof, particularly in the afternoon when it got insufferably hot inside the house. And he was up there on the roof praying, waiting for lunch. He let his host know that he was hungry. And while lunch was being prepared... He began to pray, but while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet depending upon the earth, uh, descending upon the earth. The word uh, translated sheet is the word for a sailcloth in the ancient world. Peter, being a sailor, would know exactly what this thing was. It was suspended by its four corners. He saw it coming down from heaven, and uh, in it were all kinds of animals, reptiles, and birds. I would love to have seen that vision. I can't imagine what that looked like with uh, alligators and hardbarks and, and boa constrictors and all sorts of things, buzzards on the edge. And a voice 
which said to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Remember, Peter was hungry, and it probably predisposed him to this vision. And then he's told to eat, and that would probably enough be enough for us. But Peter said, Never, Lord. He uses the strongest negative that you can use in the Greek language. It's like very much like our word, No way, Lord. I would never do anything like that. For not once in all my life have I ever eaten anything common or unclean. And the voice spoke to him a second time, You must not call what God has cleansed common. This happened three, three times, and then the thing was gone, taken back into heaven. So the conversation was, re- was repeated three times. Peter, slay and eat. Peter said, No, I've never eaten anything unclean or common. And the voice responded, Don't call unclean what I have called clean. Three times that was repeated. Third time's a charm. Apparently Peter got the message after the third time, though he was a bit confused. Now, it's helpful for us, coming from uh, Western culture and non-Jewish culture, to understand what was going on here. The Jews, uh, to this day, particularly Orthodox Jews, have a dietary system, which they call the kosher. We just refer to it as kosher foods, which is designed to distinguish between certain approved foods and certain unapproved foods. Certain things are clean in their diet and certain foods are unclean. That comes out of the law. Uh, Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14, both prescribe certain animals that can be eaten, those that uh, have cloven hoofs and chew the cud, like the cow or uh, sheep, oxen. Certain animals that were proscribed, like the camel and, and eels, Things that did not have scales and fins and certain birds were indexed. They were uh, prohibited. Those foods that were clean, they could eat. Those that were unclean, they, they couldn't. Now, there have been a number of explanations of why this is so. The best is in Scripture itself. Uh, in Leviticus 11, uh, Moses says, this is because you're to be a holy people. And as we have talked before, the word holy simply means different, distinctive. They were to be set apart from the rest of the world by the things that they ate. They weren't to eat what the rest of the world ate. Because apparently the Canaanites and the Assyrians and the Babylonians ate anything that came along. Anything that crept or walked or flew was, was fair game. But not the Jews. Now, there are a couple of reasons. One is that some of these animals were associated with pagan idolatrous worship. Pigs, for example, were eaten in, in Assyria and Babylon and, and Canaan uh, as a part of their, their religious worship. And they boiled lambs in their mother's milk as a part of a fertility rite. That was forbidden to Jews. And to this day, Orthodox Jews don't mix dairy dishes and meat dishes, as you know. It's based on that, on that law. And many have thought that the law simply exists because God didn't want his people to get involved in these cultic things, this idolatrous pagan worship. And that's one, one good answer. But I think there's another. The fact is that most of these animals that were unclean are unhealthy. Uh, pigs pass on various types of parasitic uh, infestations, and, and uh, tularemia comes from rabbits that are improperly uh, prepared, and all sorts of bad things can happen to you if you eat camels, I'm sure. Uh, I never tried, but I don't know how you get the feet down with everything else. <laughs> I think these were just unhealthy foods. And I I think what God is saying, and incidentally, to this day, most of the things that are proscribed in the dietary 
system are inedible or unpalatable. They're not things that we normally consume. And I think there's a good reason for it. It's just unhealthy to eat them. And I believe God was saying to his people, I want you to be a healthy whole people. I want your bodies to be uh, healthy so you can serve me to the very best of your strength. And that's why these laws were given. But unfortunately, the Jews interpreted them in a different way. They felt that anyone who ate these things was to be avoided. Not only the food was to be avoided, but people who ate them, so they would have nothing, whatever, to do with, with the other nations. And that was a misunderstanding of their role in life. It was true that Israel was to be a special people, unique people, chosen out by God for a special purpose. But their purpose was to be a light to the Gentiles, to be a, a source of revelation and good news to the world about them, about God and the salvation that, that he brought. That's why God chose the Jews. It wasn't because they were inherently religious or, or better than any other nation. God could have chosen the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Eskimos for that, for that matter. Anyone would have done. It just happened that he chose the Jews to be the vehicle through which he expressed and, and, and uh, uh, radiated his character out to the world. But the Jews took that to mean that they were, they were somebody special. And their food was something special. And so they wouldn't have anything to do with anyone around them. They, they understood the separation to be spatial and geographical instead of moral. And uh, they saw this privilege as something to be enjoyed by themselves and themselves alone. They missed the whole point of their unique call. And now what God is doing is taking away this dietary restriction so they'll begin to see that nothing is unclean, that all people are clean, that all people need to hear the good news about God. Now the story goes on in verse 17. Luke, the author, tells us that Peter was still puzzling about the meaning of the vision which he had just seen, and the men sent by Cornelius arrived asking for the house of Simon. They could have followed their nose because a, a tanner's house is usually a pretty uh, odoriferous, and uh, they could have found it that way, but apparently they had difficulty asking for the house of Simon. And by the way, this is some indication that, that Peter's own scruples are beginning to break down. The fact that he was living with Simon because tanners were considered to be unclean in Israel because they handled dead bodies. And uh, yet that seems not to have been a stumbling block to Peter. And this contingent of three men find him. And he goes downstairs to greet them and they tell him about Cornelius, that good-living and God-fearing man whose character can be vouched for by the, by the whole Jewish people. And so Peter invited the man and entertained them. It's just a line that doesn't seem to have much significance. But when we understand how deep was this dread of outsiders to the Jews, you understand how far Peter has come. They, they, would, they wouldn't eat with Gentiles. They wouldn't have anything to do with them. But all of this is beginning to break down in, in Peter's mind. He invites them to come in and eat. And the next day he got up, went with them, accompanied by some of the brothers from Joppa. There were six men. We're told later in Acts that accompanied Paul, Jewish Christians who went down to Joppa, took them a day or so to make the trip. It was about 30 miles from, from Caesarea. And uh, when they arrived in Caesarea the next day, Cornelius was expecting them and had invited together all his relations and intimate friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him by falling on his knees before him and worshipped him. But Peter roused him with the words, Stand up! I'm a man too. Peter was embarrassed by this worship. 
and then accompanied him into the house in deep conversation with Cornelius. Apparently there was almost immediate rapport with this man. They began to, to talk together. And when he walked into Cornelius' living room, he found a large number of people assembled, and he spoke to them. You all know that it's taboo for a man who is a Jew to associate or even visit a man of another nation. You see, this wasn't the law. This was Jewish interpretation of the law. The law never intended to separate Jews from the nation spatially except in certain instances. But the Jews had interpreted it in that way. Peter says, you know it's taboo for a man who is a Jew to associate with or even visit a man of another nation. But God has shown me plainly that no man must be called common or unclean. That's the point of the vision. It's interesting, isn't it? The vision has to do with food. That no food is clean or unclean. Uh, pardon me, no food is unclean. It's all clean. But the interpretation of it is that no man is unclean. Peter says, that's why I came when I was sent for without raising any, any objection. Now I want to know what made you sin for me. And so Cornelius tells the story. Three days ago, he says, I was three o'clock in the afternoon. It was the day of prayer. I was praying and uh, I saw a vision. Someone in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your gifts have been remembered. You must send to Joppa and so forth. And, and now Cornelius says, now we're all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to say. What a great opportunity. Here are all of Cornelius' close friends, his military friends, I'm sure, and their wives, other non-commissioned officers in, in this Italian cohort, this picked choice group of men, many of whom would later go to Rome and would be kingmakers, would be associated with, with, the, uh, with the Caesars, and who now surrounded the royal household there in Caesarea. What a great opportunity, but what a frightening thing. Would, how would you feel if you walked into someone's living room and there, seated in that room, were a dozen or so uh, tough, seemingly disinterested uh, members of another nation, people that you didn't particularly feel comfortable with, and they ask you to tell them the good news about, about our Lord Jesus. What would you do? I'm sure Peter gulped a few times and his heart must have raced, but he launched into the gospel. I remember years ago when I was working with university students, I had an opportunity to speak in Steve Newman's fraternity house. That's before Steve was actually in that house and, uh, they had just won the intramural football championship that that uh, day, and they were all drunk, everyone in the house. And uh, uh, we had set it up with the president of the house to introduce us, but he had so many sheets in the wind, he could hardly stand up, and he he uh, got up at the end of the table after dinner and leaned forward on the table. He almost fell over the right over the table, and he said, there are two guys here that are going to talk about God, and he sat down. <laughs> that was our introduction. <laughs> And I poked my friend, Jim Schaffner. I said, Schaff, you're on. <laughs> he said, no, I'm not. You're on. <laughs> and one, one knee said to the other, let's shake. And, and uh, we just got up and did it. And I'm sure that's how, that's how Peter felt. Notice his clear statement of the gospel here. He says in verse 34, In solemn truth I can see now that God is no respecter of persons, but that in every nation the man who reverences him and does what is right is welcome by him. Oh, that's a great statement. Did, did you hear that? 
in every nation. The man who fears God, who reverences God, and who does what is right is welcomed by him. Now, he's not saying in every religion. His point is not that you can believe anything you want to and be acceptable by, to God. He's saying what you find as you look through the human race is that here and there and everywhere you find people whose hearts hunger after God. They're hungering and thirsting after righteousness. They may not even show externally. They may seem very hard. They're not church-going folk. They don't seem to care about religion. But, but they have an inner hunger to know God. They yearn for Him. And Peter says everyone like that is welcome to God. It doesn't matter whether they're Buddhists or, or Muslim or in the LDS church or they don't go to church anywhere or Catholics or liberal Protestant churches. You find them there with an open heart. And Peter says people like that are looking for God. Now he says he has sent his message to the sons of Israel by giving us the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. What people are looking for has been given to the Jews, he said, so that they can make proclamation of this good news. He has given to us, that is us Jews, the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, but he's the Lord of us all. He's not just Lord of the Jewish people. He's the Lord of the universe. Now, he says, you must know the story. Why, it spread through the whole of Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. You must have heard how God anointed him with the power of the Holy Spirit. Luke reports later that this thing was not done in a corner. The word had spread. They had heard about Jesus. Perhaps it was distorted, but they had some understanding of what he did and how he went about doing good and healing all who suffered from the devil's power because God was with him. That was the secret of his power. He didn't merely come to show us what God was like. He came to show us what man was like when man isn't dwelt by God. Now, he says, we are eyewitnesses of everything that he did, both in the Judean country and in Jerusalem itself, and yet they murdered him by hanging him on a cross. But on the third day, God raised that same Jesus and let him be clearly seen, not indeed by the whole people, but by witnesses whom God had previously chosen. That's the gospel in a nutshell, that Jesus came and he went about doing good by the power of the Holy Spirit. He came not to serve, as he put it, but not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He gave himself away day after day until finally they hung him on a cross and murdered him. But that wasn't the end of his life. God overturned man's verdict and he raised him from the dead. He says he's living. We saw him. We're witnesses of it. We ate and drank with him. We know he's alive. It's a great, irrefutable fact embedded in history. Better attested than almost any other event in history. The, uh, the existence of which no one would question. He actually rose from the dead. And we are those witnesses, we who ate and drank with him after he had risen from the dead. Moreover, we are the men whom he commanded to preach to the people and bear fearless witness to the fact that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of both the living and the dead. It is to him that all the prophets bear witness that every man who believes in him has already received forgiveness of sins in his name. Uh, as C.S. Lewis puts it one of these days, every man will stand before Jesus and he will be God undisguised. And uh, uh, as Brian Fisher reminded me this past weekend, either we will say to him, your will be done, or he will say to us, your will be done. 
uh, there's at the end of our life, that inescapable fact, we're going to face Jesus Christ face to face. And what a, what a terrible prospect that would be to face the judge of the whole universe were it not for the fact that he perished for our sins. You see, that's the point that Peter makes. It ought to, it ought to strike fear and inspire awe in our hearts to think that one of these days we'll kneel before the Lord of the universe. He says he's the judge of the living and, and the dead. What a terrible prospect that is. Unless we can stand there without guilt, without fear, without sin. That's Peter's point. Everyone who believes in him already has forgiveness of sin. The issue now is no longer sin. That's not what separates anyone from God. What separates us is our unwillingness to receive the forgiveness that Jesus Christ has already wrought. And when Peter says, anyone who believes in him, he got an immediate response. He didn't even have to call for a response. Uh, Luke tells us that while he was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to his message. Apparently what happened is that it, throughout the room, these, these men and women whose hearts had long been prepared immediately recognized that's the message they've been looking for. And they believed with all their heart. They didn't say anything. They didn't pray any prayers out loud. They just believed it. And the Holy Spirit descended upon every one of them. And uh, we're told in verse 44 that the Jewish believers, the uncircumcised believers, your version has it, who had come with Peter were absolutely amazed at the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on Gentiles also, for they also, for they heard them speaking in foreign tongues and glorifying God. This was the third incident, uh, third instance of this pouring out of the Spirit. This was the Gentile Pentecost. It happened once with the Jews as a way of confirming that they were part of the, the new family of God. It happened again with the Samaritans who were sort of near Jews. They would not have been accepted by the Jews as Jews, but to anyone else on the outside, their religion was so similar it would hardly make any difference. And now with the Gentiles, there is a third Pentecost, a pouring out of the Spirit that is a sign, particularly to these Jewish Christians that are in the room, that what had happened at Pentecost was happening to these people. They were as much a part of the family of God as those first Jews who believed. In other words, no one any longer had to become a Jew in order to become a believer. They could become a, they had a straight line relationship with God. Anyone in any nation who believed was welcomed by God. And Peter exclaimed, given these facts, how can anyone refuse water or object to these men being baptized, men who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did ourselves? And he gave orders for them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Afterwards, they asked him to stay with them for some days. And apparently he, he taught them. That's one of the indications that their heart had changed because they wanted they wanted to understand better what had happened to them. Now, what do we understand from this, this passage? Well, simply this, that there are men and women and young men and women and boys and girls all over the world who, who have a heart for God. They're not always uh, so marked that we can identify them. Often that hunger is unexpressed, but you find them everywhere. And they're looking for God. They may be in another religion, they may be in another denomination, they may be part of another culture, but here, there, and all over the world, there are people who are hungry and thirsty after righteousness. And Scripture tells us 
that when someone has that desire, God rewards it. Hebrews says that those who come to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Wherever someone's heart is open to the truth, it's up to God to get them more truth. That's the point. The initiative then becomes his. He has to seek them out. No one is ever condemned because they didn't hear the gospel. God only holds us responsible for the knowledge that we have. But we have to respond to the knowledge that we're given. God gives everyone a modicum of truth. If we respond to that truth, then God gives us more and more and more until we come to, to a full knowledge of, of Jesus Christ. Some of you I know have heard the story of... of uh, <coughs> what's her name? The woman who was born blind and... Yeah, Helen Keller. Uh, for a period, she had no contact with the outside world. She was born blind. She was deaf. And uh, no one could communicate with her. She lived in her own world until her her uh, teacher, Annie Sullivan, was finally able to break through and and uh, uh, conceived a system by which they could communicate. And Annie Sullivan, who was a Christian, somewhere along the line, asked her if she knew of God. And her response was she had always known of God. Well, where did that come from? That's what Paul calls the law that's written upon the heart. We just We just know. That's... That's what we just know. But the real issue is, what do we do with the knowledge that we have? Do we distort that knowledge? Do we blunt it? Do we frustrate it? Do we push it out of our mind, or do we respond to it? If we respond to it, God will give us more. If we don't respond, he's not obligated to give us more. He does, but he's not obligated. Until we come to a place where we can hear the good news about Jesus, and if our hearts are open, if we're sincerely seeking God and we hear the gospel, we'll recognize it as truth. You and I both know people who will say they're seekers after truth, but when they hear about Jesus, they reject it. My response, at least inwardly, is always that they are not seekers after truth. They've long since quit looking for truth. But if you're looking, sincerely looking, and you hear about Jesus, you'll respond. The third thing I would say is that God uses plain, common, garden variety, ordinary people like you and me to get to them the knowledge of God. He takes the initiative to get us to the right place at the right time so they can hear about the Lord. Uh, to me, one of the, the real joys of the Christian life is simply understanding that it all depends upon God. It's not up to me. I don't have to be particularly adept at presenting the gospel or very articulate or bright or knowledgeable or anything else. I just have to be available and willing. And if I make my body and my mind available to God, he'll see to it that I'm in the right place at the right time so that I can speak a word in season to him that's weary, as Isaiah says. And if someone dies before they, I get to them, then I, I'll have to put them in God's hands. I, I don't know what happens. I know that God knows their heart and he knows that how they would have responded to the gospel had you or I proclaimed it to them. He's good. He knows. But I think it's his plan in general that everyone hear about Jesus through you and me. Let me tell you a story. Don Richardson has written a book called Eternity in Their Hearts. This is one of the most incredible books I've ever read. And... Um, he tells a story about a young British diplomat who uh, was in Burma in the 1790s. 
and he was traveling in a, uh, an area in southern Burma that was largely unknown to the Western world at that time. It's still not well known. Many primitive people living there, tribal people, uh, most of them bandits. They lived off of preying on people who passed through that particular area, about 250 miles south of Rangoon. And this diplomat was uh, told before he went to not make any waves. Don't create any problems down there between those people and the Burmese government because there appeared to be a great deal of tension between these tribal people and, and, the, and the Burmese. And he happened to, uh, to wander into a village one day and uh, he couldn't communicate with these people because they didn't speak Burmese. But he had a guide along who did speak their language and he told them that these were the Karen people that lived there for as long as anyone could remember. Particularly stubborn, obstinate people because they could not be converted to Buddhism. The Buddhists had sent priests there numbers of times and uh, they weren't interested. They had their own tribal folk religion. And as this diplomat began to talk to them, he learned that they were monotheists in contrast to all of the people who lived around them. They worshipped one god and they called him Yawa. There had been no missionaries in, in, in that region. But they believed in one God who was good, who was eternal, who knew everything, who was all-powerful, and who one day would send them a revelation about himself. And uh, this diplomat was a Christian, and he was tempted to say something, because he realized that these people were open to the gospel. But he was afraid to, because of the instructions he had received. So he went back to Rangoon, and he sent a report to London. It, it's still in print. Don Richards, uh, Richardson refers to it, apparently accessible today. Uh, in which he points out the state of these people. It's called an account of the embassy to the king of, uh, of Atta. And that's uh, apparently in, in their archives there. Some years later, about 1816, a Muslim traveler came through that region and he left behind a book. He, he sensed also their hunger. And uh, he had a book written in Burmese, which he gave to them. And uh, they couldn't read it. So they wrapped it up in a piece of Muslim cloth, uh, Muslim cloth and stored it away in one of their buildings. And later travelers discovered that a, that a religion had been established around this book. They venerated it as a relic. And they would gather to sing hymns to the one God, Yuwah, and worship him in that, in that little, uh, little hut in that village. In 1817, one year later, Adnan Judson, who was an American Baptist missionary, came to Rangoon to begin his ministry. It took him a number of years to learn the language. Then he began to dress as a Buddhist priest. He wore the orange robes and walked the streets and, and uh, preached to people who would, uh, who would listen to him. He had no converts for seven years. Not one person responded to the gospel. One day someone came to his front door and knocked on the door and asked if he could give him any work. Turns out he was a man who was deeply in debt. And uh, at first, uh, Judson couldn't understand him. Then his neighbors revealed that he was a member of one of, of these tribes, the Karin tribe. And uh, he was in big trouble. As a matter of fact, it was known that he had murdered 30 men. And he was trying to escape from the authorities. And uh, a very violent, vicious fellow. And they advised him to have nothing to do with this man. But Judson loved him. And he put him to work. And led him to Christ and taught him to read Burmese. And when he read the Bible, he realized that that was the book that his people had been waiting for. And he went back to his tribal area, and he began to preach. He went to the village where they found where this manuscript 
was found that they worshipped. And he recovered it and discovered that it was an Anglican common book of prayer. Now, what a Muslim was doing with a common book of prayer, no one knows. But as you know, the book of prayer, the common book of prayer, is full of scripture. And he took the book and he began to preach Christ to them, and the whole tribe converted. And it wasn't a, a, a it wasn't a, a, it was an individual thing. The whole tribe became Christians. And everywhere he went, from one village to the to another, he, he got the same response. And after a while, they began to get concerned about their neighbors. Remember, these are bandits who preyed on travelers, and they were infused with the love of Christ, and they got concerned about the people over the hump, and they sent missionaries across the Himalayas. And uh, when the missionaries arrived in that region to start baptizing believers, and this is by actual count, there were 250,000 Christians in that region. In one village alone, they baptized 5,000 Christians. They set up schools, they learned the Burmese language, they began to study the scriptures, and eventually they were they were translated into, into their own language. And today that's still an enclave of, of Christians surrounded by, by Buddhists. And we say, well, that's a sort of unusual thing, but it's not. It's really not. It's true of your friends and mine out there. They have a heart to know God. Many of them do. Some are suppressing the truth. But many that that do not seem to be open to the gospel are looking for God. And you and I need to be available. It's all God wants is an available body to be filled and flooded with the Spirit of God and used to make proclamation of the good news to them. Let's stand. Father, deliver us from our fear and our guilty silence. Help us to realize that that we stand in a unique place in our in our community, that we also have been chosen, not because of some special virtue that we have or because we're particularly intelligent or knowledgeable, but you've simply chosen us to be your own and given us the truth and given us an opportunity and placed us in the office or shop or school, classroom, or wherever we may be to be your men and women. And we want to be available to you put ourselves at your disposal to be used as you see fit. Help us to serve with all of our strength and with all of our faith, dependent upon you to make us what you want us to be. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.